Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is John Cornish, and he's a field collector, and he's an educator, and he loves minerals, and he's going to tell us all about it today. Well, John, I'm so happy to have you here today to talk about minerals, and it sounds like you have spent a lifetime collecting. Hey, thank you very much, Katie. Yeah, I've really enjoyed finding minerals. This is something that I've been doing since my late 20s. I was 29 when I saw my first crystal and asked how they'd been made out of plastic. I couldn't believe that something like that had actually come out of the ground. And once I did find that that's where these unique treasures had come from, I ran right on out into the field. And that's where I've spent the majority of my time actually prospecting for and digging and recovering these unique treasures. So what was that first one that you saw? It was a quartz and pyrite specimen that came from a very world-famous locality here in Washington State where I live called the Spruce Claim. And this is a property that's up in the Cascade Mountains. You've got to climb a half-mile vertical hike where you're pulling yourself up with rope. And then you get up into the cliffs, and the cliffs are full of voids that are lined with these beautiful crystal treasures. And at that point, that's when I really start to get excited. I pull out my hammers and my chisels. I read the rock, and I try to decide how best to recover these beautiful treasures. Wow. I didn't know that they grew in the sides of cliffs like that. I would have thought that you have to go under the ground, but that makes sense. You know, wherever we get exposures of land, we have the potential for these treasures, whether they're crystalline or fossils or lapidary. Um, You know, whatever the environments are, uh, we're real fortunate that underfoot, it's just basically a huge treasure chest that is just waiting for us to delve into. Is it mostly here in the West or across all countries worldwide, just you'll find different things depending on where you are. Uh, Yeah, definitely. The geology changes dependent upon a person's region. Uh, Here where we live in Washington state, we have all the environmental types and rock types that you would look for these types of treasures in. So sedimentary rocks can be rich in fossils. Igneous rocks can yield the quartz and pyrite, like what we're finding up at the Spruce Claim. And then, of course, metamorphic rocks. We can find beautiful things like garnets in that type of environment. So dependent upon where we're at, and certainly some of these rocks that hold treasures may be not just underfoot, but maybe hundreds, if not thousands of feet underfoot, dependent upon where we're at. Some places are certainly much more rich than others. And it's to those areas that have a rich history of these types of productions that I'm drawn most to in the hopes that I can also make my own discovery. Is there a lot of secrecy, like fishing holes? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Go to certain mines. Absolutely true. You know, uh, particularly when you're out and you're looking for that new locality, you're covering ground from reading a report that somebody had published years and decades ago. And as you're covering that ground, you're pretty much off the radar for most other collectors in that instant. Now, certainly there's other places that we can go to, organized field trips, or other regions that are known to produce an abundance of material over a wide area. But when we're out in the field, a lot of times, like a good fishing hole, 
these are little pockets where the treasures all congregate. And if we can find those unique places, that's when our odds are going to go up and we're going to have the potential to really make some startling discoveries with a bit of good fortune. Can you tell us about one of your most startling discoveries? Well, get happy to. Um, I mean, uh, I was out just here a couple of days ago uh, into a local quarry. Uh, this is an open property that people can go on into in one of the logging companies' back roads areas. And uh, there I collected a number of beautiful copper crystals, beautiful reticulated things, right-angled bends, beautiful iridescence, cubic forms, uh, or or really startling wire groups that spin and twist among themselves. It's a beautiful material that I can collect here within an hour of the house. And then if we go out further, um, some of the best collecting that I've done is here a few years ago, I was invited to work down in Tasmania, Australia. And down there, we were working for a beautiful lead chrome mineral called crocoite. And crocoite, even though it's got lead and chrome in it, is actually a startling neon orange color. And that particular project was probably my pinnacle, uh, my very best moment of being able to really put the skills, the, the thoughts that I had in how I wanted to work a particular locality. That particular opportunity really yielded some of the finest plates. And by plate, I mean a, a slab of, of matrix of wall rock that contains the crystals. The crystals are growing upon the surface. And we actually recovered plates of this incredibly fragile neon orange mineral up to just about four and five feet. There was uh, two five-foot plates, two four-foot plates, and uh, oh, probably a dozen three-foot plates. And nobody had ever seen crystal plates of this fragile mineral that big before. And uh, this was a crystal pocket. It took us two years to dig. It was approximately oh, wow. 40 feet long by 30 feet tall. Just imagine your hallway at home lined with three-inch stick-like crystals that are bright orange, peppering the walls along its entire length. And now you've got a picture of the beautiful site that I saw as we were working into that crystal system. So amazing. I bet. I mean, I can't imagine there would be anything like that experience of being inside that hallway full of crystal, like you say. You know, uh, when I got down there, I mean, it was a dream opportunity to be flown to the other side of the planet to dig crystals that were just sitting there waiting for me to come to them. And yeah. I'll always remember the mine owner, he walked me down the tunnel. We were deep in, the water's dripping down on me. And I'm looking at the face of the drift where the crystals are actually exposed. And I'll always remember, we walked on up to that. These things are glowing bright orange in the illumination of my headlamp. Crazy. And he looked right at me and he says, John, well, you know what you're doing. I'll see you later. Have fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And it was it was just awesome. I mean, uh, without sounding too flip, I mean, literally, I just stood there with my mouth open and just thought all the lucky stars, they've all aligned for this moment. And how wonderful is this? Yeah, so cool. And it, it's such an Indiana Jones kind of thing to 
to somebody like me, it sounds like you're off having world adventures and finding these treasures, you know, does that feel that way to you? You know, some, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's mice getting into your food and your sleeping Ooh. bag and, you know, uh, it, no, no, it sounds very romantic, but, but there is an awful lot of uncomfortable that goes with it. But, you know, like most things in life, I think if they're just given to you, I don't think that you appreciate them when you put effort, you put your best effort into something and you get to realize through that effort that you've been able to bring home something that maybe somebody else in this planet of 7 billion plus people, nobody's ever seen before what you've been able to find. And that's, that's when so I incredible. think, you know, this really is an Indiana Jones to quote you. It really is an Indiana Jones moment because, you know, there's, there is magic all around us in life. And for me, being out and discovering these natural treasures, those are the things that definitely fuel and inspire me. That is awesome. I think so many people would love to have something that they feel so passionate about, you know, and that is what is fun to me about jewelry making too. And just kind of this world of gems and beads and metals that we get to be in is we love it. And it shows, you know, all kinds of people have stories about um, their excitement about being in this kind of work. I think you're right. It is really magical. Well, I I think your comments are are right dead on too. You know, uh, for people who have the skills and the vision to create jewelry, I have always been so inspired by these types of visionary individuals. And yet at the same time, I recognize that I am creating in my own right. I just do it with hammers and chisels, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's yeah. just, it's just, it's a great thing. So we're, we're both, we're both sharing that creative spirit of, right. you know, discovery. Well, and it comes together and to create some really beautiful pieces too. I mean, the specimens that you're talking about from Adelaide, would, would most of them become part of someone's specimen collection of minerals? Or would those um, pieces, the, um, I don't know, spindle, is that the right word for the pieces that look like a little explosion, you know, coming out of the rock? That's what it looked like to me. Do oh, those yeah. become, um, are those cut and polished into smaller stones or do those typically stay the way that they were found? When we find the specimens, and and there are a couple of reports that are online that actually document this, as well as on YouTube, uh, there's a couple of videos there where you can actually see the process and see oh, okay. what we're doing. But when we find this material, it's usually very different looking than what it ends up by being when it's put onto a museum shelf or a collector's shelf. In this case, what we do is we'll take them out of the mine. We'll go ahead and we'll stabilize the matrix because the rock itself that it's on is called a Gaussian. It's a iron oxide lump, if you will. It's just a big lump of rust uh, that this mountain is that these crystals come out of. And as we take this iron oxide matrix out, it needs to be stabilized so that it doesn't break down and fall apart. So we'll do that with um, glue and water, Elmer's glue and water, just stabilize the matrix. And then Keeping it simple. We'll, yeah, and then sometimes we'll have to remove other minerals that are growing upon the crocoite crystals. In this case, it's another mineral called gypsite, and we'll use phosphoric acid to remove that other mineral 
And once we've done that, we've got the crocolite crystals completely cleaned. They're bare and exposed, and they're beautiful orange colors available. So usually trimming is also involved, trying to make the rock look the most aesthetic. Uh, the mineral specimen, the crystal points to rise up off the back of the specimen, giving the viewer a rise as their eyes go across the crystals that kind of takes them on a journey of discovery as they view the matrix and they view the specimen. So while some come on out, just a you know quick wash of the hose can sometimes clean crystals, like collecting we've done down in Montana, uh, where we've collected beautiful, uh, up to about five, six inch golden calcite crystals. And there it just took a brush of the hose to take the clay off and let them dry and put them right on the shelf. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So every place is a little bit different. Yeah. I would imagine it takes some skill to be able to see what a lot of skill to see what the piece would look like once it comes out and you cut it apart and you have the smaller specimens and like you said, needing to stabilize it perhaps and also cutting it in such a way that it looks the most interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Just like with a gemstone, uh, you're going to be cutting it to enhance those beautiful properties that it holds trying to bring those out to best advantage. And of course, artists know that trying to utilize those characteristics of the stone so that it makes their shine. Right. Does that also affect the price when people are shopping for minerals? Is that something um, to take into consideration? That's really a good question, Katie. You know, there are so many things that can determine the value of a specimen. And of course, this is a tough subject to broach anyway, because of course, how do we put a value on a rock? But you know, the things that can determine the value of a good crystal specimen versus one that is less desirable would be perfect crystals as compared to broken ones. Uh, crystals that rise up off their matrix in a beautiful spray versus things that lie flat, things that have color versus things that are dull. Uh, there's a number of different scenarios that can come into play. But in the end, I think we're all drawn to beauty. And when that specimen, when that piece of art that somebody has created talks to us, I, I think that's when we know we're looking at that perfection personified. Well, and I bet you can tell in people's faces when they're looking, you know, or shopping for crystals, they kind of have that like really sweet, soft face when they see the one, you know? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely. Kind of like looking at gemstones, I, I see people's faces like, oh, that's my turquoise or, oh, that's my whatever. You know, I could see people being the same with when they're shopping for minerals. That is such a true thing. Yeah, because of course, we're all so individual and we all have our own individual tastes. But yeah, when you get to see that emotional response that comes to a person, you know, they've been, they're kind of dull, they're, they're glassy eyed, they're staring listlessly at the things. And then, you know, cause people get overwhelmed. Uh, it this is, is overwhelming. Oh my Especially gosh. Especially when you're someplace like Tucson, when there's so much happening and so much to look at, you know, something really has to stand out at you to, to grab you. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you know, that's one of the things that I love to tell first timers who are going to Tucson is make sure that you set some time aside to just discharge all the input that you've received. Because it does, it gets so overwhelming. You'll see more things in an hour than you've seen in a dozen museum visits. So 
Uh, it, it really is daunting. And every once in a while, we just need a break to let ourselves recharge so that we can jump back into the fire again and go give it another look. I know. I know it sounds so funny to think that shopping is a labor, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very true. <laughs> kind of labor sometimes. of love, labor of love. <laughs> right, so true. Um, what other tips would you give for people who are shopping for minerals in specific? Well, you know, uh, particularly for first timers going down to the show in Tucson, uh, the one number one thing that I think that you should do and really spend time doing is study before you go. Uh, take a look at the websites that are on out there, ask your peers, talk to anybody that you can, review anything that you can, because when you go to Tucson, stepping away from what may be a regional rock show scenario into the biggest show on the planet, you know, Tucson, I think in 2020, uh, there was 50 plus shows that went on, just over 50 shows. and. You know, in in these shows, you may have not just tens of dealers, but you may have hundreds of dealers. So uh, studying who you want to visit, where you want to go to see the things that you're interested in and to decide even before you go what it is that you're interested in, because there's so many distractions that can pull you to the right and the left, which is not necessarily a bad thing in a journey of discovery but if right. you're focused it will allow you a better opportunity to come across the materials that directly interest you um now if you have a far-flung palette of interests you're certainly going to find everything and more at the tucson show it's hard to describe to people who haven't been the first time that I went, I uh, took the gym shuttle around, I think. And I just went where the bus took me, you know, because I had never been there before. Um, oh, yeah. And it was yeah. it was pretty um, very inspiring to see all the different types of things. And it did make me realize that in future years, I needed to have a better plan. Because there, you can't get to everything. So very true. Very true. And you know, the things that that is also so magical is when you get down there, uh, here where I live on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State, I, I feel sometimes a little bit alone, like there's not a lot of people that share my desires and interests. But when I go to Tucson, every single person that you come across <laughs> is <true>. there <laughs> because they love minerals, they love geology, they love jewelry. They love all these wonderful multifaceted aspects of our hobby that make us so satisfied when we look at the big picture of what we can encounter when we go to a show like Tucson. Yeah, it is true. And I think it is important to leave a little bit of time to just kind of soak it up, you know, see who you meet, see what you see. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, the Tucson synergy for sure. Absolutely. It does happen. But you do kind of live in the live in the promised land up there, John. <laughs> I love well, the Northwest. I, <laughs> Thank you. I, I love it. We've got our Northwest rain today. So uh, oh, the moss so between my toes is growing so vertically <laughs> right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I love where I live. I feel very blessed. I am a Washingtonian. Um, here now, about 20 years ago, I moved out to the Olympic Peninsula. And this is definitely my home. Oh, it's so pretty out there. What are some of the other minerals that you can find around that area? 
Well, here on the Olympic Peninsula, we're actually more in, in a fossil area than we okay. are within an area of crystal discovery. Uh, the, the majority of the land out here on the Olympic Peninsula falls into the Olympic National Park. And of course, the park is a place that we can go to enjoy the beautiful aspects of nature, but we're not going to be able to collect things there to bring them home. So with such a large portion of the peninsula locked away, I've got to work the outer peripheries. And that's actually much more fossil rich as compared to mineral rich. Uh, we've had some very good luck out here finding fossils. My best discovery is an 18 foot long 25 million year old fossil whale Whoa. that is a brand new genus and species. Sitzquake cornicherum is what they named it. And uh, when I'm out walking the beaches out here on the Olympic Peninsula, I'm, I'm you know distracted by the eagles and the seals and the beautiful views across the Strait of Juan de Fuca to Canada. But at my feet, there's an incredible abundance of unique fossils. Some fossils will be so unique that they've never been seen by anybody in the history of the human race. And that's wow. what really makes, for me, uh, when I go outside, when I take that fresh breath that is found in these remote areas that I visit and explore, that's when life is most satisfying to me. Well, you're making it sound really really intriguing and like i need to get out there and get some air also <laughs> well you know Katie, uh, i was 29 when when i saw that first crystal as i'd mentioned i'd never seen one previous and the thing that i loved most about coming across crystals and fossils for the first time was the realization that i that anyone can go out there and look for these things you don't need to be rich. You don't need to have a PhD. All you need to have is a desire to go outside and observe. What can you find? From your couch, it's really tough. But outside, <laughs> it's amazing the things that can be right underfoot awaiting discovery for all of us. Hmm, that's cool to think about. There's an area here, Quartzsite. I'm sure you've been there. It's not that far from Tucson. And um, people talk about the quartz crystals just being on the ground. You know, when you get out of your car, they're all everywhere. And I think that's kind of fascinating. And the idea that you could be anywhere, really, and there's something to find there. Absolutely cool. true. Um, one of the mining claims, I, I own a, just under half dozen mining claims here in the United States. And I do a lot of educational talk with children, and one of my claims is called New Beginnings. It's in Idaho, and it's a druzy quartz, so small little quartz crystals and agate locality. Cool. And when we first came across it, Katie, uh, you and every single person listening to this presentation would have automatically just gone a running, just like I did, <laughs> skipping over the tundra. Uh, because this place, when we first found it, Katie, it was magical. Every single rock, every single rock that was on the surface was either a crystal or an agate specimen. And there was thousands of them. Just every single rock that you looked at was something wow. that somebody would want to take home and utilize as a treasure, something that nature has provided for them. And it was just waiting. It was just me who who got lucky I, and rediscovered this spot uh, as I went back into the literature. 
I actually found an article where a gentleman had a picture of his wife standing right on my claim, and that was done in 1937. So sometimes we like to think that we're the first time, or the first people that have been to a place, but boy, there's usually somebody that skipped over that ground and also found the treasure. Right. There's a long, long legacy of people finding things. Yes, ma'am. Just ma in the dirt, under the ground. Yep. And what can we like find if we look? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what about the, what, is there any issue with people taking more than they should of what they find? Well, you, you know, I, I think that's a, a good question. And it kind of opens the door to a bigger question um, that I tapped onto just a little bit with the Olympic Park comment. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are places that are protected uh, that we cannot collect. And so we want to find those areas. If it's private property, we need to approach the landowner. We need to find out if we're able to go on their property to look for the treasures that are there. So there's a certain amount of due diligence that's involved in being able to recognize the places that we can collect legally. So if we're in a good place and we come across something that we want to collect, I, I think a lot of it comes down to what we're going to do with it. Now, if my goal is to have a couple of little trinkets or treasures, I, I can go ahead and, and be satisfied with a handful. Some of these things are so fragile that if they're not collected, they'll be destroyed through the natural weathering that occurs through rainfall, through, you know, different types of scenarios that uh, can cause these crystals very quickly to break down. So in that instance, I certainly wouldn't have uh, any qualms about trying to recover everything that I could. Now, um, my mentality is also a little bit askew in that so much of the collecting that I do, I do for giveaway materials to kids and to young adults in lectures that I do where I like to provide a tangible thing for the kids to take home. I, I don't necessarily care if they get into crystals, fossils, jewelry. Uh, it, it's not so much the goal. The goal is to really give them exposure, to let them know that this world exists right at their feet if they take the time to look. And by giving them a little treasure to take home, I, I think that that gives me, or, or at least it validates for me, uh, the opportunity to collect a little bit excessively because I'm not just hoarding, I'm actually redistributing and sharing the magic of geology, crystallography, mineralogy, paleontology with others uh, through these giveaways that I do. Well, and what better way to draw them into being interested, you know, than to hold it in their hand and feel that magical sense. You know, I think we're we're all so tactile. You know, when when you can put it in your hand, I think it makes it real on just another level versus seeing something on a video or seeing something in a display case that you can't touch. I I, I love it when I have the weight of a rock in my hand and I I get to have a relationship, a personal relationship with that specimen just through the ability to touch it and experience it firsthand. Well, and I think it helps people, kids especially, understand the relationship too between what's around us and, you know, by holding it, they can feel this sense of the outdoors and what is out there. I think sometimes seeing polished gemstones, it's not the same. 
you know, I remember being in a science museum as a kid and pressing the little light that made the black light come on and all the crystals inside glowed. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know by looking at them without the black light that they glow in the dark. You know, I mean, it was just kind of this really amazing aha moment. And that's the same kind of thing of having that little piece to hold. It's different than seeing it, like you say. Oh, yeah. And to just kind of uh, take that comment and twist it a little bit towards the artists in your group, to be able to look at that raw stone and see the magic, the story that's in it, and then be able to bring that story out through the creation of one's jewelry, I think is such a magical process. I am absolutely in awe of people who have that vision and ability to create beautiful, beautiful, unique treasures that we see when we go to the show. Definitely. And I love that. I saw a piece that you, um, I think there was a picture on one of your, on your website of a rough stone. And then there is a polished gemstone coming out of it, you know, so the person had to work to polish that. I don't know if that was you or someone else, but somebody, some very skilled artist um, polished that stone and made it look like a um, polished gem, you know, that was just attached to this very rough piece of rock. And I think you're right. You have to have a real vision for that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And some of the people in your, your listening audience, Katie, they, they definitely have that in spades. And then there's others that I I hope they'll use. This as that little nudge to uh, push themselves into their own discoveries and their own unique visions coming to fruit when they, when they, get to take that special thing that is themselves and create their own jewelry. I I just think that's so magical. And every one of us, uh, to one degree or another, has the ability to share uh, with with everyone. And uh, how how awesome to have it be through jewelry. I I just, I'm in awe of these people, Katie. I'm sorry. I'm just going on and on. But (laughs) in the end, I, I just love these people who have the vision to create. Me too. Well, on every episode, I always ask my guests to choose a favorite stone, but I feel like I should ask you to choose a favorite mineral. Oh, well, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I love my crocoite, certainly the experiences that we had down there. And there are a, a few rare stone dealers that have cut and faceted crocoite crystals, as crazy as that sound. Uh, Hmm. I think that's a mineral that I, I believe has got a Mohs hardness of between two and three, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, um, so soft. But yeah, for to tap on into your group, um, you know, one of, one of the minerals that I, I really enjoyed collecting down in Southern California was tourmaline down at the Himalaya mine. And this is one of the world's premier localities for the mineral tourmaline. And there we get Elbi, which uh, more often than not, I was collecting in pink and green bicolored crystals. And oh, it's uh, so beautiful. It, it, it was such a step beyond uh, to not just be able to work the rock, not just to work the rock and find a void within it that the crystals had formed, but to actually do that and then pull out crystals that you know can go right on into a, a jewelry setting. They're beautiful, gemmy rods that have these exquisite light pastel green and pinks alternating tones. And, you know, the the natural facets on the crystal themselves lend themselves so much to jewelry that 
when I opened on up some of my first tourmaline pockets, uh, those were moments that literally just set me right back. And I, I just remember looking at the open void and the rock ledge and the pegmatite and seeing the crystals there and just thinking, you know, how could life be more sweet? <laughs> and of course, that's when I went up top out of the mine to the surface and I got a hold of my gal, Rosemary. And I asked Rosemary to come down underground and together we both got to collect the crystals. Now Aww. that that was a good moment, Katie. I'll say that does sound really sweet. Well, well I love talking with you and I know that people are really going to enjoy learning more about minerals and the discovery of gems. Thanks so yeah. much, John. Oh, you're welcome. You know, the, the, the key thing here to take away um, is that these are accessible treasures for everyone to discover. Uh, all you need to do is get on outside, uh, work that bug of yours, that brain of yours, get it processing some information, go on out there, explore the out of doors. And, and really, who knows what you'll find? Uh, the, you know, the, the best thing you'll find is a day away from concrete and cell phones and fluorescent lights. Uh, when you get on outside and you see nature and you see these things in their natural environments, I think we get an appreciation of the world around us that really, when we take it home into the madness of our day-to-day -day lives, I think we can find it as a little calm oasis that we can go back to when things just kind of get a little bit unruly. So get outside, mm -hmm. everybody, find these treasures, Go on outside, smell that fresh air, get some sunshine. And even if you're here in the Northwest and the sunshine is tinted by rain, um, <laughs> you know, get on outside, everybody. You'll, you'll be better off for it. No, oh, I love it. Well, thank you very much, John. Absolutely, Katie. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry-artist-podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor, and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.